Are you a man looking for an intensive program to help you overcome sexually addictive behaviors? Gateway to Freedom is your answer. Gateway to Freedom is a three-day workshop for men seeking to overcome any destructive sexual habits. Whether married, single, or divorced, Gateway to Freedom will help men regain hope for a new life of purity and real contentment. The workshop is conducted by experts in the field of sexual addiction recovery with decades of combined experience. Read testimonials of workshop alumni at gatewaymen.com. Get all the info and register online at gatewaymen.com or call 1-800-49-PURITY. Hi, my name is Jonathan, and I'm the founder of the Gateway to Freedom Workshop. I want to invite you to join us at our next workshop coming up August 10th through the 12th in Florida, just outside the most magical place on earth, Orlando. So call us today at 1-800-49-PURITY. That's 1-800-497-8748 or visit gatewaymen.com. Good day, radio listeners. Welcome to this edition of the Pure Sex Radio broadcast. We're glad to have you with us. My name is Jonathan, and we have some very special guests uh, on the line with us from Florida. We have Mark and Beth Dennison. So, Mark and Beth, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jonathan. It's glad to be here. And tell me again specifically where you guys are in Florida. We're in Bradenton, Florida. We're about an hour south of Tampa. Okay. What's that? Seven miles from the coast. Nice. Well, that's, that's got to be rough living, you know. So, <laughs> Someone had to live here, so it was us. That's right. That's awesome. Well, before we uh, jump into y'all's story, I, I want to let our listeners lo- know, as we do periodically, that we are a listener-supported broadcast, which means the only way you're hearing us or seeing us is because we've had faithful and generous partners come alongside and, um, and support this ministry. And so if you'd like to learn about the ways in which you can support our uh, ministry, just go to puresexradio.com and click on the donate link. Well, Mark and Beth, I'm, I'm really glad that you guys decided to come on here because I think, uh, I think your story is going to really give a lot of hope to a lot of people because um, I just think there are folks out there that are wondering, like, what if, you know, they have a lot of doubt, they have a lot of just turmoil and brokenness in their marriages. Maybe some of it is known. Maybe a lot of it is unknown at this point. And I would love for you to just be able to share your story and um, kind of where it started and how you've gotten to the point that you are in your lives right now. Well, you want to go first? Sure. Um, well, we met when we were teenagers, actually. Um, I was 17 and Mark was 19. And we met at church. He was actually the youth pastor at the church I began attending after my father died. And I hadn't grown up in church. My father had died. A friend invited me to church. And I went there really seeking what I was missing in my life. And that's where I met Mark. For me, my faith journey began when I was 13 years old. I wasn't raised in church. I was raised in a middle-class family in Houston, good family. But... um, didn't know anything about God until I was a teenager. A bus ministry came to our apartments, and I began riding the bus to church. That's where I found Christ. And um, I just assumed that by coming to faith in Christ that 
he would make me complete in every way, and part of that being sexually. Uh, but going through the kind of questions you have anyway at that age, I went through a lot of confusion in my life uh, about sexuality, didn't have answers for it. When I talked to my parents, they gave me some books to read that they never read themselves. And um, so it just wasn't much help. Uh, youth minister said talk to the pastor. The pastor said talk to the youth minister. So that didn't help a lot. And so I uh, had a lot of inhibitions, a lot of isolation. When I was very young, I uh, had a problem walking. I, my bones didn't develop correctly when I was young. I was legally blind when I was eight and had surgery on my eyes much later than that. But had a lot of issues, stuttered really badly. And so I didn't connect with people, didn't connect with girls well, and that drove me to isolation. I think isolation is what drove me to addiction. Yeah, so I'm curious, to, especially tapping into this uh, sort of church environment and how there was seemingly a lot of disappointments that came out of that, one being kind of this um, expectation that Listen, if I if if I invite Jesus into my life, then circumstantially, I mean, everything will work. Everything will be fixed. The other piece is it sounds to me like, you know, you were sort of a little bit of a pinball in the whole church system of we'll send him over there and send him over there and and nobody really seemed seemingly wanted to maybe embrace you and your brokenness and your issues. So why don't you, maybe both of you have some experience in that and just talk about what that's like and what that feels like from a childhood perspective, but then maybe a different perspective that you've gained now that you would want to encourage those in the church to maybe address and think about. Well, for me, it was a matter of having holistic teaching. Uh, life was compartmentalized. My sexuality had nothing to do with my spiritual life. And so I was taught. And so if I just got right with God, everything would be fine. And so I would act out with girls in the youth group, nothing that would seem serious at all. But to me, it was kind of ex exploring my sexuality and and um, finding frustration every step of the way, not having any place really to turn. Well, and I think the thing that is really a burden for us now, having been through those experiences and having had times when we sought counseling in the past and were told by Christian um, therapists and by ministers things that were just so, not just wrong, but very damaging, um, that there's so little education in this field on how to deal with it. Um, we just have a real passion that we convey to church leaders and to people working with um, those that are sexually broken, how to properly minister and educate um, the people dealing with these issues so that it's not damaging. So they do address it. It's not been addressed. It wasn't addressed when we were younger and dealt with these issues, and it's, it's unfortunately not progressed much in the, all these years. Yeah, and so then my curiosity then is how did— you know, Mark, especially, how did the, then you begin to interpret that in your life? Because one of the things I've heard said before is that, you know, kids are great observers, but terrible interpreters. So you're observing all these things about um, maybe the, the disappointments regarding Jesus, <laughs> the disappointments regarding church, and then the realities of your budding sexuality. So how did you begin to interpret sort of that mixture as you move through adolescence? I interpreted that uh, anything to do with sex was wrong. Mm. Uh, my parents 
we were never allowed in their bedroom and we never really saw affection at home. We didn't give it, we didn't receive it, we didn't see it. And so anything that was really close on an intimate level was just not seen. And so in church, it wasn't talked about. And so in my mind, without knowing I was thinking this, it became something that was, uh, I knew it was there, but it was to be done in secret. And so when I began acting out in my 20s, it was at night, it was in secrecy, it was under the cover of darkness, because the message I received was that anything to do with sex was just wrong, and you don't talk about it, you don't do it. I mean, I, I knew on a theological level that wasn't true, but my real training came from what I saw, not from what I heard. Sure. Yeah, and that's just it. I think, I think as kids, we learn far more by what is modeled than by what is spoken. And so if it was yeah. modeled that there is something wrong, maybe even with just general intimacy, forget about sexual intimacy, then that's going to be an incredibly confusing thing when people are trying to speak to you even theological truths about the beauty and wonder of sex and marriage, and you're going, I don't even know what even a general sense of closeness and intimacy looks like in a relationship, let alone the idea of sexual intimacy. Now, Beth, what was your what was kind of your growing up like um, that then when y'all's lives converged might have created some issues of brokenness or things that you you might not have talked about or what was your experience like growing up? It's a good question. Um, we kind of became the perfect storm and that I grew up in a just average American family, but I had some abuse from a family friend. Uh, that led me to make some poor choices growing up and so and I didn't grow up in church I didn't have that foundation I didn't have that part of redemption over that part of my life I got saved when I was 17 and so all of my relationships before then were certainly not Christ honoringly were not godly so when I met Mark and I was a new believer to me he was this you know white knight and shining armor who was completely different from everything I had known. And so it was very easy for me to put him up on this pedestal thinking he would be completely different than anything, anyone I'd ever known in the past. And so unfortunately I went into a relationship with him and into a marriage thinking that, okay, I'm marrying this Christian man who has been called into ministry and it will be so just like a utopia. Right. And I, there was no place really for him to go but down, unfortunately. Uh, so we were kind of the perfect storm in that regard. So I'm curious to know then what, you know, you just shared, Beth, some of kind of the the expectations then you had going into marriage of what it should be like based on your image of Mark. So Mark, I'm curious, what were your expectations maybe going into marriage based on your image of Beth? What was it like for you? Well, she was the most beautiful girl I'd ever seen, still is. And so I thought my sexual fantasies and confusion would be solved. That when we went away on our honeymoon, then everything would just be great. I wouldn't have any struggles, wouldn't have these thoughts, uh, wouldn't have any questions. And um, obviously it didn't work. And so I was relying on her to fulfill in me what she was impossible. Uh, it, it was just an impossible task. I was too confused. I didn't understand sensuality or sexuality at all. And my anticipation of what would happen was just uh, misguided. I had, we went to premarital counseling. This was never addressed. And so once again, it drove me further into secrecy. 
I'm curious now then, when were your expectations of one another, maybe not fully disappointed, but questioned when you got into your marriage? Like how long did it take before, Beth, you realized maybe this isn't the knight in shining armor? Or Mark, you realize, okay, maybe this isn't how I thought it was going to be in terms of all of my fantasies. Well, for me, I think, um, you know, there's nobody perfect. So you discover after living with someone for maybe 24 hours right. that, that they're not perfect. Uh, but didn't take long. <laughs> no, but it wasn't so much that. It, I, I think because um, I didn't grow up in church, and, and even though he didn't either, he had been saved longer than I had, and he was called into ministry. So I kind of thought that any of those misconceptions were just my own faulty thinking. Again, it went back to, it's got to be my fault somehow. I, I'm doing something wrong. I don't have this whole you know, Christian thing figured out yet. Um, and so I think it was easy for me to turn the spotlight on myself, thinking I was the issue. And, and before we get to, to Mark's response, Beth, do you find that pretty common in a lot of wives? That they, they sort of put that additional burden on themselves of guilt or it's my fault or if something were different in me or maybe I'm the one that's really deficient in my thinking. or in And, and why do you think that is that so many wives tend to just put that burden back on themselves? Well, I think part of it for me, especially as a new believer, I heard things, um, we were in a, a pretty fundamental church, and so I heard a lot of things about the wives honoring their husbands and being submissive. And I guess I translated it. I don't know that they meant it to come across this way, but I translated it as it was my responsibility to make my husband happy and provide for him and be everything he needed me to be. Not realizing until many years later when I was healthier and farther along in my walk with the Lord that only Christ can fill those places in our lives. And when I look to him and allow him to fill me up, then anything else is just, you know, the icing on the cake. But I had that misconception from the things that I'd heard and I guess my own interpretation of it. So I'm yeah. not necessarily being other people, but that's where I got at that point. Yeah. So Mark, then when did you begin to discover, okay, maybe what I thought marriage was going to be like is not really what it is like? About a year or two, I would say. Um, so I thought because I wasn't fulfilled and the fantasies were still there that I just needed to work on the marriage a little bit, try a little bit harder. And if I was maybe a little stronger, she would be stronger and she would meet my needs if I met her needs. So it didn't take long, though. I, mean, I, I knew the confusions that I already had. It became pretty clear that they were still there. And um, so I began looking in all the wrong directions. And so I'm curious, too, then, through your your relationship, even before marriage and then into marriage, Mark, what was going on in terms of your sexual brokenness and your sexual addiction? Well, incredible confusion, because I knew I wanted the fulfillment of sex, but I wasn't wanting the openness that was required of God to have real intimacy, real connection. And so um, there's a statement that I've heard a lot of guys say that when they pay for sex, they're really not paying the woman for the sex, they're paying her to go away. And that's what I drifted toward. There were lines I never crossed. Um, and so I never put us at risk physically, but uh, it was destroying my life because I, I began meeting women. 
and would pay for the experience and would meet them in places that obviously I should never have been. And this was a double life that I was living and I thought I could control it. Uh, I compartmentalized. I thought what I do on these evenings, you know, for an hour every week or two or three or four weeks, uh, I can put that out of my mind. I can repent from that and surely God's going to cleanse me. It'll take those urges away. And I would even rationalize I can be a better husband now because I'm, I'm, I'm taking that away from my thinking for a little while. And this just retarded thinking just kept escalating. And I would go to counseling, I would get therapy for it, but never really fully came clean because the shame was just overwhelming. And I was a pastor this whole time. And so I had absolutely the shame of the secrecy of it. I had no one I could talk to. So this, is, this was going on both before you got married and as well as after you got married. Is that correct? Yes, but really escalated after we were married. Okay. And when you talk about kind of going away and being able to, to unplug and then even getting therapy, what on earth did that therapy look like in a way that you're able to keep this a secret from your wife and then also, you know, not be exposed for that? I mean, were you be just speaking in really general terms or were you deflecting towards a different kind of issue that you thought you were coming in for therapy or how did that even work? Well, we never addressed it. We've had a few issues that would come up that would maybe be in the realm of him struggling with fantasy or whatever. And anytime I ever discovered anything, it was um, like the tip of the iceberg. I had no clue of anything that was of any magnitude. And so I knew there were issues. Um, and we both grew up with parents who had the mindset that you didn't dirt, uh, air your dirty laundry. You didn't talk about, sure. you know, difficult times with other people. And so we both were raised in that environment. And so when we had some issues, it wasn't something that we would definitely share with anyone else. And But we had a few things. Um, again, I never knew the magnitude of it. It would be in the area of maybe fantasy or struggling with that. But we did go to counseling. And I, I have to say, one of the first times we went for marital counseling and dealt with some of the sexual intimacy um, issues we were having, it was uh, with a Christian counselor. It was actually at a church, um, a Christian counselor at a church. And um, I remember one of the things that he suggested, because we had these struggles in our intimate sexual relationship, was that maybe we wanted to consider watching some pornography together. And I, I look back on that now and think, oh my cow, that is so horrific. And we never went back to see that person and I had no clue then that that's the issue we were struggling with. But I look back on that now and think that is just appalling to me and so um, just well, so and, frightening. And some of my great counseling was when I would go by myself, sometimes I wouldn't tell her why I was going. And one time I went to counseling center, ran into a friend of mine who happened to be a counselor there. And I lied and told him I was there for something totally different. But, you know, some of my best counseling in those days was just stop it. And, you know, amazingly, it right. didn't help. You know, it helped him. I was putting money in his pocket, but I kept coming back because I, I wasn't stopping it. But yeah. things, um, we would go through cycles where she knew there was more going on that I confessed. And so I would make a little more effort, little more stabs at it, went to some men's retreats, went to an Otterburn retreat, did some things right, but never hit bottom, never became completely confessional. And everything came out a few years ago when, um, I was pastoring a church and ministry was going well 
was doing a lot of really cool stuff, felt like all that was really good, but still with this issue, for 30 years this was going on, we've been married 35 years, and five years ago, I went to church one Sunday, and I, we had three services, so Beth always came for the second and third services, and I left my phone uh, at the house and got a text, and Beth confronted me with that that afternoon, and I made up some story about it, and she seemed to buy it a little bit, and then she kind of thought, no, that didn't make sense. And so for the very first time, I just got real and told her everything. And that's when we did a three-day intensive and polygraph, and everything came out. And that was where the healing really began. Yeah. So l- let me back up just a little bit. When was how far into your marriage before there was maybe any kind of conversation, Beth, where you had maybe your spidey senses sort of going up of, well, maybe there's something going on. I mean, because obviously you had sort of these multiple instances where it's like, okay, we kind of touch on some counseling, we're trying to do some, but how, how far into your marriage before there was any kind of understanding that maybe something is going on? Well, I would say probably within the first year, we had had kind of something. So it wasn't very long into it when I felt like, okay, something's not right. There's something missing. There's just, um, there's, there's some disconnect. And, uh, but again, I equated it to, okay, there's a problem with fantasy or there's a problem with this. And anytime I would discover even the slightest thing, of course, which is standard with addicts, they lie. So they give you just enough to shut you up, basically, and to appease you for the moment. Um, and so I would get a, just a fraction of the story, and that would be hurtful enough. Um, but uh, those were kind of, for me, when I look back over the 30 years that we lived in this, um, to me, they were each isolated things that would happen over a period of you might I'd have an instance here it would be a tough spot we'd kind of work through it and maybe two years later something else might come up that would be a little bit different but still I'm only getting a portion of it mm-hmm. and so I always felt like there was something there but I never could I never was able to connect the dots if that makes sense yeah I saw the whole picture so then so then what was it like for you then when you know 30 years in now the the dam bursts and now the realities come out. I'm just curious to know, and I think there's a lot of wives that listen to our program that would just like to know just what was that like emotionally, and and how then did you move forward in a sense of how on earth do you rebuild trust or you know after you've kind of had it exposed that there's been 30 years of deception, um, just what's that like as a wife emotionally? Well, it's, you know, of course, devastating. I'll have to say that um, maybe five or six or seven years before finding out the whole thing, I had gotten a pretty good picture. And it's funny, I was just reading about this recently about um, the blindness to betrayal. And and after I got into recovery, I was able to look back and see, wow, there were things that I learned that I somehow completely forgot. It's like I wasn't able to really um, grasp it or to accept it, I think would be a better term. Um, But I did realize at that particular point that I had become a little bit of a crazy person in this roller coaster marriage of trying to always feeling like there was something wrong, but never being able to get my hands around it. Mm -hmm. And so I did the typical thing of, of the snooping and the trying to find 
evidence that I wasn't a crazy person. <laughs> but I recognized, I, by God's grace, not because I was in any particular counseling, um, but I recognized that this was not healthy for me and that I had to stop being on this crazy train. And I, at that point, um, until actually we, I found out, I spent that time just trying to focus on me, being a healthier person, more grounded, and so forth. So by God's grace, when it actually did come out, I was at a much healthier place emotionally and spiritually. Um, yeah. And so it was devastating, but I wasn't destroyed. Um, but, uh, of course, there aren't really words to describe the, sure. uh, the magnitude of pain there is when you find out that your whole marriage has basically been a lie. Yeah. Um, that the person you thought you knew for 30 years has been living a lie. Um, and you wonder if anything in there is true or real. Does he love me? Did he ever love me? Was this all a lie? So, you know, I wrestled with all of that devastation, uh, but fortunately in a little bit healthier place. And maybe I would have been if it had happened 10 years before that. Well, I think that's important for, for ladies to hear in that, um, God cares about your pain even before you're aware of your pain, that he was already putting you into kind of a process of being able to sort of gird you up in yes. order for when the truth really did come out that you were more prepared for it. Now, yes. Mark, I would, I would ask you a similar question. So here you've been building a library of lies for, you know, at least 30 years in your marriage, certainly they, they extend before that. When, when again, that moment of the dam breaking finally comes, I, I'm curious also then to know what was that like for you emotionally? Because there's a lot of conflicting emotions. I know this from personal experience. There's a lot of conflicting moment, uh, emotions that go on in that moment of finally full confession. So what was that like for you? Two feelings. One was shame. You know, embarrassment, uh, humiliation, total emptiness, loneliness, isolation. Again, just the, I felt like I was the only person in the world that had ever done these things, that ever lived a life like this. And for that to come out in the open to the woman I love so dearly and to hurt her that much and to see her pain, shame was just enormous. But the other was a sense of freedom, um, because when you when you live in secrecy and you live a compartmentalized life, even though 99% of the time everything's good, but that 1% was really bad, then you can't sleep, you, you can't function well, you can't listen to yourself preach some Sundays. And so to finally get that out, uh, knowing that you don't know what your future is going to be now, but you know it's finally out, mm. it was uh, just a, an unbelievable sense of relief and a sense of almost a rebirth. Well, I hate to do this. We only have a couple minutes left, um, but I would love to have you guys back again to really kind of unpack a little bit more of now the ministry that God has has put y'all in. But before we close uh, this episode, what is just a message of hope that both of you would give to the couple out there that is is facing this? Again, whether it's known in their marriage yet or not, what is just something that you would give as a word of hope? And then also, um, let these couples know how they can connect with you and your ministry. Well, I'll go first. Um, when all of this came out, um, for me, it was a sense of 
almost a crisis of faith in that I recognize that everything I knew about my life, life as I had known it, was over. My life would never be the same again. And yet, looking at that, I had to come to the decision that either God's word is true and that all things are possible or it's not true. And so for me, that's what it boiled down to. I had to believe that healing for both of us was possible and that restoration was possible. Even though when I looked at it, it looked like a total disaster. It looked like there was no way after all that we've been through, after all that he's done for our whole marriage, that there could be any hope in that. But I had to believe that God's word is true and that anything is possible mm. in God's hands. And so that was the step of faith I took, not knowing where it would end up, but that's what I was trusting in. My, my word of hope is real simple. John chapter five, the man was laying for 38 years and Jesus said, you want to be well. So for those that want to be well, you can't depend on your wife. You've got to want it, and it's got to be an absolute desperation, desperate surrender. And anyone willing to do that, for them, there's hope. Yeah. Our ministry is built on that. It's called There's Still Hope, and our uh, website is there'sstillhope.org. We have a myriad of materials and resources. We love people to check us out because your word, Jonathan, hope is really the mantra for everything God's called us to be about. Yeah. Well, Mark and Beth, thank you so much for just uh, being willing to share your story. We are so grateful for that and just uh, thankful that you were able to be on the program with us this time. Thank Thanks. you very much. And listeners, of course, we're always glad that you're with us, and we look forward to seeing you back here again next time on the Pure Sex Radio broadcast. Pure Sex Radio is paid for by Be Broken Ministries. Visit us online at puresexradio.com.